This is Amy Cohen Epstein, founder and executive director of the 20 plus year old nonprofit organization, the Lynn Cohen Foundation, and the SEAM, the series for education and awareness in medicine. In this podcast, I'll be interviewing female founders, entrepreneurs, scientists, doctors, researchers to talk about women's health, wellness, and preventive care. Take a listen. Dr. Brittany Siontis is a uh, medical oncologist with a specialty interest in soft tissue and bone sarcomas at the Mayo Clinic. And to be quite frank, I don't know much about this area of sarcomas and cancer and soft and bone tissue. So I'm going to kind of let you take it away. I'm thrilled that you're joining us and telling us more about this because I think it's incredibly important. Um, so just, I guess, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into this, and then, you know, what it is that you do. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. And um, you are not alone in <laughs> not being super familiar with bone and soft tissue sarcomas. Um, so I'm always happy to sort of share information about um, a rare yet very important topic and something near and dear to my heart. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm a sarcoma medical oncologist at Mayo Clinic. So this is the only type of cancer that I treat. And in truth, even as I was going through my training, I really didn't know a lot about sarcoma. And it was in my oncology fellowship that I ended up spending time in a sarcoma clinic and sort of fell in love with it. Um, so sarcoma is kind of this very mixed bag um, group of cancers that come from what we consider the connective tissues of the body. So all of the things that hold us together. So we can see sarcomas that come from fat cells, muscle cells, bone cells, because they can come from so many different types of tissues in the body. There's actually over 70 different types of sarcoma. And together, those over 70 different types of sarcoma are less than 1% of cancers diagnosed every year. So that's why most people have never heard about them. You know, just to put that into context of numbers, the American Cancer Society estimates there's going to be about 1.9 million new cancers diagnosed in the United States in 2021. And only about 17,000 of those will be bone and soft tissue sarcomas. Um, while we continue to learn more about cancer in general and cancer-related mortality is in many ways improving, mortality because of sarcoma remains quite high. Part of that is the rarity, difficulty, and delay in diagnosis and limited treatment options um, available for these cancers. And what are the warning signs? Are there any, are there any symptoms, signs that, you know, people... I guess I should know about, but in general that, you know, that, that give a red flag alert. Yeah, they can be really vague as with a lot of cancers. Um, but one of the things that we always talk to patients about is a new lump. And 99% of the time, a lump is going to be something benign, non-cancerous, nothing to worry about. But red flags would certainly be something that is growing over time. Um, something that's greater than a golf ball size. Most of us can picture a golf ball in our head. So that's kind of a nice um, uh, comparison to make there. Pain is actually a really 
poor discriminator, but certainly if something is causing pain, we would want patients to go get it evaluated. Um, so those are really kind of the big things that we think about in terms of red flags and things to think about with sarcoma. And what age group is most any age? Any yeah, age. any age. So when we look at the adult population, the average age of diagnosis is really in the fifth or sixth decade of life. Wow. But we know that that can actually really vary from one type of sarcoma to another. So the bone sarcomas are actually much more common in the pediatric and what we consider the adolescent or young adult population, which is sort of patients that go up to the age of 39. Um, whereas more of the soft tissue sarcomas, we see more often in the adult and older adult population. But in truth, I've seen patients in their 60s and 70s that have a bone sarcoma, and we've certainly had pediatric patients that have soft tissue sarcomas. Is the sarcoma related to hemangioma? That's a good question. So a hemangioma would be a non-cancerous sort of conglomeration of blood vessels. Um, there is, there are vascular sarcomas or sarcomas that arise from these sort of conglomerations of blood vessels that are separate from hemangioma. Okay. And who is at risk for this? Who's at risk for um, bone and soft tissue cancers? Is there a population that's at greater risk or something that we can do? Yeah, the, vast, the vast majority of these tumors happen for reasons we don't fully understand, Yeah, which makes it really challenging to do any sort of screening. Mm -hmm. Not, you know, it's not like breast cancer where we can do mammography or colon cancer where we can do colonoscopy for screening. There's no good screening for sarcoma in part, again, because it's so rare, the yield of trying to screen millions of people, you know, would be relatively low. Right. Most of these cancers are not genetically associated. So there's no sarcoma gene that we know about at this point right. that people could potentially pass along to their children. We do know that there are some family cancer syndromes that can increase the risk of multiple different types of cancer, including sarcoma, hmm. but that is a very small proportion of sarcoma patients that have one of those cancer syndromes. And then we know there are certain exposures that could potentially increase the risk of developing a sarcoma, um, radiation being one of them. Hmm. But again, that risk is overall very low, but one we pay attention to in my narrow cancer world, nonetheless. Got it. Got it. It, you know, it's, it's very, it's its own being and it's its own life, but it does have similarities to ovarian cancer. Mm -hmm. um, whereas ovarian cancer is really labeled a rare disease because mm -hmm. it affects only, you know, about 25,000 women every year. And so I think similarly, the attention, the research funding, uh, the awareness is so different than, you know, cancers that affect hundreds of thousands of people every year. And also that, you know, only even in ovarian cancer, you know, less than 10% are women who have a genetic predisposition. Mm -hmm. So it is just one of, you know, most, most often, you know, 90 ish percent of the time, um, you know, it's just one of those things that happens, which is still unexplainable, even, you know, after tons of research has been put into it. 
um, which is so frustrating. Do you, how do you deal with that? It is frustrating. It's very frustrating. And, and I think that frustration is one of the things that really drives me and I think drives other providers who treat patients with sarcoma to try and learn more about these cancers. So we can counsel our patients with more data behind what we're talking about. So we can provide better, you know, more tolerable, more effective therapies to treat their cancer. Uh, but you're right, it is a rare cancer. And so there is a small group of people who are really passionate about treating and understanding sarcomas. I will say, even since I've been involved in treating patients with sarcoma, that community continues to grow. Yeah. And so I do think very slowly there is increased interest and dedication and awareness. And part of that is in thanks to, you know, the providers and the scientists and the, you know, the, the physicians who are involved in treating these cancers and seeing these patients and really being driven to try and do better. But a lot of that is also thanks to the patients and their caregivers, their friends, their families, you know, working so hard to raise awareness. And there are a number of sarcoma foundations out there that are really working to provide support for patients, but also raise awareness. And, you know, there's several of them, the Rain and Sarcoma Foundation, the Lyle Myosarcoma Foundation, Sarcoma Foundation of America, et cetera. There are a number of Facebook groups, you know, thinking about social media that have been founded by patients um, or loved ones of patients who have passed away because of their sarcoma that are really passionate about trying to do better for patients in the future. And I think that movement can be really powerful. I absolutely agree. I agree. There's something very powerful about survivors talking. Yeah, for sure. And it's a little harder when you're talking about people who've lost someone. It has that has a little different bit of a like way to get people involved, you know, it's mm -hmm. somewhat so depressing for lots of people, honestly. It, I mean, I've dealt yeah. a lot with ovarian cancer. Yeah, it can, you know, and I think every one person has their own way of coping with their diagnosis. And some people find these groups to be incredibly helpful and meaningful and supportive. And I always tell patients, you know, I can counsel you based on my experience as the doctor and I can counsel you based on the science and the data that we have. But in truth, I've never been through what they've been through. And I think for many patients, I've had them say that finding someone who's on a similar path has been the most impactful thing that they've been able to do. And I think that's probably especially true for these rare cancers, whether it be sarcoma or ovarian cancer. Yeah. You feel so alone. You know, I think being told you have any cancer is scary and overwhelming, but then hearing that you're 1% or less than 1% of all cancers diagnosed every year, I can only imagine how isolating that feels. Absolutely. I agree. I mean, yeah, there's no question. Um, twist, switching gears just a little bit. I love that you are um, at the top of your game. You're a women, female oncologist. Um, can you give us some of your background? How did you end up in this life? And did you always want to be a scientist, a researcher, a doctor? Because there's a whole difference between being, you know, growing up a girl, a little girl and wanting to be a doctor and then yeah. being a expert in a very small field and top of your game at the Mayo Clinic. And I think it's incredibly 
inspiring for lots of people to hear. So we just give us your background, how you got to where you are. Yeah, it was um, not a straight path at all. (laughs) It was a very circuitous path. Um, I was definitely one of those kids who always grew up saying I was going to be a doctor. Um, No one in my family is in the medical field. So I don't really know where that came from as a kid, but I always said, you know, this is what I was going to do with my life. And then when I was in high school, um, I actually attribute my interest in science to, to one of my high school biology teachers. She was phenomenal and, and really just kind of sparked that passion in science in me and the curiosity um, that is really needed to be successful in science. And so all throughout my undergrad, I knew the end goal was to get into medical school. And so then I, I did get into medical school. I went to the University of Washington in Seattle, mm-hmm. um, which was phenomenal experience. And when I started medical school, actually, I thought I was going to go into obstetrics and gynecology. So I obviously ended up in a very different place. Um, and through my various rotations, I really developed a love for internal medicine and, and looking back to my time as a little girl and thinking about, you know, that picture in my mind of what it was going to be like to be a doctor. It was really an internist. That's what I thought about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up going to internal medicine residency and I did that here at Mayo Clinic and, um, then thought I was going to go into pulmonary and critical care. So again, I said a very circuitous path. I really was very interested in lung physiology um, and the science behind that. And so it was sort of on this path of, of pulmonary and critical care. And it was during my second year of residency. It was um, over the Christmas holiday, actually, I was on our inpatient leukemia service and just had one of the most profound patient experiences and, and one that I will remember forever. And, um, just spent two weeks in the hospital taking care of the most lovely gentleman and got to know him and his family. And it was through that experience that I realized that I was meant to go into the field of hematology oncology. And so completely switched gears ended up applying for hematology oncology. And then through some very early experiences in my fellowship training, learned about this crazy cancer called sarcoma um, and just really fell in love with the complexity and you know the heterogeneity under this umbrella of one diagnosis. I love that I get to see patients of all ages. I love that I get to treat men and women Um, And every conversation with every patient every day is a little bit different, which keeps things challenging, but um, interesting at the same time. That's amazing. I love that. And what's your support system like? Because you, I know you have a five-month-old who's home napping right now. Um, And so you've definitely, you know, you wear a lot of hats. And so how do you do it? Um. Still figuring that out. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. You have, you know, a really wonderful support system. My husband is amazing and has always been incredibly supportive of me, of my career. Um, You know, we have been great partners as we've sort of entered this parenthood journey together. He is also a physician. um, So there are the advantages that he understands what I do. He's not in oncology, but he is in, in medicine. So has sort of that understanding of, of the job aspects and what comes along with that. And 
um, you know, my parents and my sister have always been my biggest cheerleaders. And no matter what, throughout my journey of training, they have been incredibly supportive. And here at work, um, I'm very fortunate to have really amazing and incredible colleagues um, because days can be hard sometimes when we're dealing with this cancer. And sometimes it just feels like, you know, all I'm doing is giving bad news. And, and so we really have that support in one another at work as well to keep ourselves going and focus on those happy cases and, and those days that we get to give a lot of good news. That's amazing. That's great. Um, what would be sort of the one takeaway that you would say to people when, you know, now learning about sarcomas, when I talk to women in particular, because um, that's, you know, my audience, yeah. my thing is know your normal, you know, know your baseline, know what your normal is. And, you know, don't, you have to be in touch with your body mentally and physically and know when something is off and when something's wrong. And there's a fine line between going you know, being a hypochondriac and going crazy and, you know, running yourself rampant to every doctor under the sun, but there is, um, that is a line. And so there is a, a lot of room up to that to be your own best advocate and to be, you know, really in touch with, with how you feel, how you look, how things look on your skin, but, you know, and what's going on inside. And when things really feel off, you know, it's up to us to say something. What's sort of your takeaway that people should have? Yeah, I 100% I agree with what you just said. And I actually tell my patients that all the time, whether it be at the time of their original diagnosis or, you know, they've completed therapy and now they're under the surveillance and, and they sort of feel like they're waiting for this other shoe to drop and, you know, what do they need to look out for? And I tell my patients all the time, you know your body better than anybody else. And I want you to call me if you feel like something is changed, it's persistent, and you don't have something else to explain it away. Yeah. We all get GI bugs, we all get aches or pains, you know, we all get things here or there. But, you know, if you have a symptom or you have something that's going on that you know is not your normal, to use your words, yeah. and you can't explain it away because you were, you know, shoveling your driveway yesterday, or, you know, you went out and have been training for a marathon, et cetera. Um, you know, those are really the things that need to be brought to the attention of someone and, and absolutely be your advocate. Yeah. And that must be really challenging also because sarcoma, like you said, affects people of all ages. So you have to, in addition to educating the medical population and adults, also children and parents to children. So, you know, we have to teach our kids at such a young age to be self-aware, which is mm -hmm. I'm setting you up with your first child. That's the hardest thing I think to teach kids um, at all. Totally. I, you know, I just had a conversation with my 18 year old about being self-aware and in the medical, you know, when talking about medical issues, especially, but, you know, young kids, especially, you know, we're, we're so prone to, well, one telling kids is to just you know, suck it up or you're fine yeah. or nothing. Um, women were prone to just taking care of everybody else. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, it's a huge challenge. And I am, you know, applaud you for talking about this and being in connect, you know, connecting with great foundations that are doing work in your yeah. field to get, you know, get the ed educational part of it is so important. Yes, it is. And, and I think too, you know, educating patients, caregivers, but also other providers, because yeah. even within the field of oncology, 
you know, if someone is practicing in community oncology, they may go their entire career with never seeing a sarcoma. So, you know, through continued medical education, you know, online resources, we're always looking as well to educate other providers to, yes, it's rare. And most of the time, it's not going to be sarcoma, but please keep it on your radar. Because if it is, you know, we really want to capture those patients early and get them to providers who know this disease and treat it often. Absolutely. And oftentimes I found it's when you go in for something else. Yes. You know? So it's yeah. encouraging preventive care. It's encouraging taking care of yourself because sometimes that just happens, you know, across the board. It just happens where, you know, you go in for one thing and your doctor's like, what's that? Or you go in for one thing and say, why are you here? I don't, I don't know. This is not your field, but what is this? And then that physician, that, you know, that doctor needs to know that, well, I don't actually know what that is, or I'm not sure, but I'm going to refer you to somebody who does. And that's a huge piece of the pie. It is. And I will tell you, that is a a huge number of patients that I see in my clinic. Well, I went to the, you know, I went to the doctor for X, Y, or Z, you know, and I happened to have this scan for one reason and it showed this whole other thing going on that maybe was completely unrelated to the symptoms I was having. Um, So yes, absolutely agree. hundred percent. My dog just had her spine uh, x-rayed and we found an earring in her stomach. So there you go. And I mean, I don't know how long it's been there, but we never would have known. So now we have to deal with that. So, you know, good luck. (laughs) It's our connection, but it reminded me, you know, really, 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 visually and intensely that that is often what happens. It really is. And, you know, that has been a a challenge, especially in smaller cities and rural communities. Um, People who don't have access to places like the Mayo Clinic or USC Morris or NYU, where you have true, you know, the top people in the top of your field and experts, best in the world. And that's, mm-hmm. that's hard. That's, that's a, that's a challenge. Um, and that's something I have certainly not even come close to figuring out is how to disseminate that information across the board. So everyone can have access to high quality education within the medical field. Um, and also the med, med people in the medical field have access to that same high quality education. Yes. Yes. That's very true. Um, and I think, you know, we all, try our best to, to give lectures and, and do these sorts of things to try to, to raise that awareness. But I think one of the biggest things about being a physician is knowing what you don't know right. and knowing your resources. And there are a ton of resources out there. You know, if someone sees a patient in their clinic and they do a biopsy and it comes back showing this, you know, leiomyosarcoma that they've never heard of, they've never seen, there are a lot of ways to get information about how to best treat that patient and how to refer that patient to the right people. Um, So I think that's one of the biggest things that we learn in medicine is it's okay to say, I don't know, but then you need to know how to find the answer to what you don't know. Absolutely. I absolutely, to me, that's the joy, the, the joy, the, the challenge of becoming an adult too. (laughs) Knowing what you don't know, being okay with it, not pretending that you do, and then asking for help and saying, yeah. where are the resources I can find to get to figure this out? Because yeah. I'm ill-equipped to do this, not because there's anything wrong with me, just this isn't my thing. Yeah. Um, I think that's really important. 
Well, I want to wrap it up because you have a baby sleeping at home, but just one thing that you would want to leave everyone with to know and to think about. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, I guess, you know, in addition to just sort of being your own advocate, um, you know, don't give up. Yeah. You know, don't give up. And I think if if you feel like, you're at your wit's end and you're not getting the answers that you need, um, reach out and ask someone else because there's a lot of people out there who are going to be more than willing and happy to help and might have just another little nugget of information that can help you along your way. And there's always hope coming from an oncologist. There's always hope. I think that's amazing. And I also think that's something that's not easier is the wrong word, but something that we can do, especially now, if one of the good things to come out of COVID is that we can, you can connect with resources outside of your immediate community and immediate neighborhood. And it's, it's, it's more accessible. You know, technology has allowed us to be more connected, which has pros and cons. But in this case, I think it's a, it's a big deal. So to have, be able to reach out to experts all over the country, all over the world, um, we can do that now. And I think that's, you know, that is a huge sign of hope and advancement and a way to, to, to get to the bottom of things. So I completely agree. 